Annie Perry. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Excellent. Thanks for coming in and doing this. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, Fereshta's Tale. Fereshta's Tale. Fereshta's Tale. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you you used to, you're a, you're a native of Colorado. Yes. And you grew up in the valley, correct? Uh, part-time, grew part up in the time. valley, but mm -hmm. this is where my roots are. My, my great-grandfather, uh, D.R.C. Brown I, um, came to Aspen in the 1880s, came over Taylor Pass with an ox cart and a string of mules, I believe, and he helped open up the first shop, well, not one of the first shops, he helped build the first building when it was just a camp and sold tools to the miners. In Aspen? The, uh, the silver miners in Aspen who were mining Ajax in the wow. 1880s. Yeah. Okay. So my family's been here since then, and uh, my grandparents had a cattle ranch outside of Carbondale for decades, and this is where my family still is, and this is where I come when I have any reason to. Yes. <laughs> Often. Yes, sometimes more than once. <laughs> Frequently, to it turns try out. Try and um, uh, do this, for example, because yes. we did have a false start when we tried to record this the first time, but we're yeah. doing it again. And, and the good news is, the silver lining is, is we're together. Because last time we were yeah. not together, and we had technical difficulties, maybe as a result of that. So, so what are you doing now? Um, now I am an attorney. I live outside of Seattle, in Washington State, and I work in the area of uh, federal Indian law. Okay. And that sounds like a fairly narrowly defined, unique federal Indian law set of or area, like a niche kind of category of law. What do you what are you what do you do with federal Indian law? Are you an, is it an advocate role? Are you is it administrative? What kind of law is it? Um, well, I think of federal Indian law as a really um, dynamic area of law, but it is a small area of law. And I think that when I um, run into attorneys who have their own shingle or, you know, go and, and do regular courtroom work, they kind of are puzzled by it uh -huh. <laughs> um, right. because it's not, it's not um, a huge area. But it is um, incredibly um, dynamic in that it changes a lot. I didn't know about it when I went to law school. When I first went to law school, I intended to do um, international humanitarian law, international human rights law. That was my goal, and then I discovered in law school when I took federal Indian law um, that there were many pieces of it that really aligned with what I wanted to do, what I was kind of passionate about. And what um, you're passionate about is what? Um, well, okay, so before law school, I uh, was an intern at the special court for Sierra Leone in Freetown, um, okay. and I think and well and I studied war in my undergraduate um, and like the laws of war and all of that so so my passion kind of became like how you know civilians can survive war or our laws around it like that was kind of where I went into law school and then in finding federal Indian law you know you have um, you have many peoples right mm -hmm. the indigenous people of, of North America that mm -hmm. have survived um, Genocide, right? I mean, yes. like when well, you could you could argue survived, didn't survive, but many of them, you know, many cultures did survive barely. And mm -hmm. now we have this system where they were not eradicated; they still have rights. They're still recognized. Well, they are recognized as sovereign nations now. That wasn't always the case. Um, right. So, to me, federal Indian law was this amazing um, discovery of the complexity of, of a conquering government 
you know, not eradicating a people, allowing them to stay? And how does, how do then do you have different governments um, coexist? Coexist, right? I mean, federal Indian law is so difficult. There's jurisdiction is just uh, this massive issue and problem, and, and sometimes nobody can even figure it out. There's federal jurisdiction, sometimes there's state jurisdiction, there's tribal jurisdiction, and then depending on the issue and what's happening, you have to figure out who can exercise their laws. So you're really kind of on the front lines of one of America's most long-standing, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, areas of dispute and conflict. Dispute and conflict, I would say. You're, thank you for saying that. I don't yeah. often think of myself on the front line, but in a way, I guess uh, federal Indian law is very much that of like trying to work out a cohesive system. Right. Um, it's there's it's almost like an element of diplomacy as well as law. It sounds like definitely like, like there's an element of diplomacy there. Definitely, and I think um, you know in in the in the Northwest where I live, a lot of the issue is around the resource. Salmon is huge. Um, then you're trying to work and, out treaties and the Native Americans' rights to salmon and the Native Americans' rights to salmon and and you go you have treaties at least in Washington State written in 1855 mm -hmm. um, and you're trying to work out who has rights to something that when they were written in a trading language that you know wasn't even right. really anyone's native language right. like nobody could imagine that there would be scarcity of fish right so it's just yes yeah crazy it is crazy and so, so, and really hard yeah. Um, I really love it. And the reason, I thought it was important to talk a little bit about what you do, because I think it influences how you ended up getting involved with Fereshta in, the, in this issue. But I think which, it does, yeah. which, which is unrelated to your day job. <laughs> it is unrelated to my day job. But it is connected to you, I think, in terms of how you engage <laughs> the universe, so to speak, right? Thanks, Paul. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, would that be a, probably a, no, I think that's a good way to put it? Um, so, so tell us a little bit about um, your your work with Freshta. Is this woman from Afghanistan? Yes, Freshta is from Afghanistan. And you got involved with her. How? Um, I got involved with her because I uh, read an article in a local magazine um, about a nonprofit that connected women attorneys in the U.S to women in Afghanistan who aspired to be attorneys to work on their legal English so that then when they um, applied for programs, they had a better footing okay. in English. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a really amazing success. I think they worked there the, most of the time that the U.S. military was there in Afghanistan, so not quite 20 years. but. Okay. But Quite no, no affiliation with the military. Oh no, they uh -uh. were. But no, just during the during basically the United States involvement, if you want to call it that, occupation, yes. whatever term you might use, mm -hmm. um, for our engagement in Afghanistan. Yes, right. when mm -hmm. um, girls were allowed to go to school and women mm -hmm. were allowed in the workforce, this organization connected women who wanted to, you know, keep going with their schooling right. and and develop careers. Right, and. And so you were working with her in this regard, and then talk about what happened because she, ultimately this is an abduction story and and, yes. and a and a um, and an ongoing effort to seek asylum. Is that the right word? Not or, to, um, for her. You know, and her one of the end goals would be to to actually file for asylum, but mm -hmm. asylum is um, specifically 
and legally you have to be within the borders of the United States to okay. apply for asylum. So I'm jumping ahead. So she has to get there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, okay. I'm jumping ahead. So, so go ahead and um, okay. from the point of where um, you're working with her as, a, as, an, as an English instructor, Sure. Just talk and give us the timeline, just, you know, just in general terms to okay. run through that. Um, I, I signed up to volunteer with this organization, and I was paired with Fareshta, so she was my first mentee. And this was about when? And this was in May of 20, oh, the, the COVID years make it murky for me. 20, 2019 was the year before COVID. <laughs> 2020 was the first year. March of 2020 was the first lockdown. Yeah. Okay. So right after um, COVID, it was like May of 2020 okay. that um, Fresh and I met and we would meet once a week and um, and we would talk. And, and she's about how old? She is 30. She's 31 now. She's 31 now? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the beginning, her English was... Uh, it was good, but um, some sometimes the mentors and mentees would just talk without using a camera. Because if you use your camera, there were very specific rules. Like not, you couldn't have a man in the background on my end. Like I couldn't accidentally have someone, you know, a guy walking through, walking through and stuff. Right. But I decided to use my camera because um, I thought it might help her see my mouth as I spoke. Sure. And I noticed her English really improved drastically, pretty okay. quickly. Um, so we talked once a week, and I would say that she was living, uh, you know, not a privileged life, but maybe compared to a lot of people in Afghanistan, she wasn't in dire straits at all. She mm -hmm. was living with her family, um, helping caretake her dad. She was helping to plan her brother's wedding. And sometimes she would travel with her father. He's a retired doctor. Uh, for medical appointments and such. And so there were some weeks where she would miss our, our talk, but then she would send me an email and she'd be like, oh, I had to travel and my sister's house doesn't have email or those things like that. So mm -hmm. um, there were times when we, you know, we missed our, our standing weekly meeting, but we were never out of touch for that long. Okay. So uh, November of 2020, uh, she missed our, our meeting and I didn't really think much of it. And then... Um, she didn't email. I didn't hear from her at all. And then she missed a second one. And okay. so then I was like, well, that's, that's strange. And, okay. you know, internet, unstable, that. But it was weird. Mm -hmm. And so then when she did get back in touch, she told me what had happened. And I learned that she had been abducted um, and held by the Taliban. Okay. So she was on her way to meet her sister, I think, for a nail appointment. And she thinks that um, they must have come up behind her with something and over and put over her face to mm -hmm. knock her out. Okay. So she woke up in what she describes as um, a really dirty apartment and she was chained to the wall. <clears throat> and the men that were holding her explained to her that she had offended a Taliban... Um, like elder? El well, general or uh -huh. elder or someone important and high up in the Taliban. Mm -hmm. Uh, like a decade ago when she had been a teenager and working in the hospital where her dad and her brother worked as doctors. Um, she'd been in, in high school and gotten into a midwifery program. And this was right after. So Fereshta, when she was young, um, couldn't go to school because it was when the Taliban was in charge in the 90s. And, the, and so then after the Taliban fell, um, she went to high school and she got into this midwifery program and went into the hospital to work. So she was volunteering and um, working. She actually interpreted for Doctors Without Borders at that time. 
And then this man, this Taliban um, important man, was in the hospital for something, and people were paying homage to him, and Fareshta wouldn't. And he said to her, straight out, why won't you come and mm -hmm. kiss my ring? Or you know, and, mm -hmm. and she ran out of the room when he called her out. And her dad came to get her and said, you have insulted him. You need to go back and apologize. And she wouldn't. And that was it. And that... Ten years prior. Ten years prior. Um, you know, so when she was like 19 or 20. Right. And, and they tracked her down. And they, tra and they told her that they had been looking for her for a very long time. And they were now waiting for the right Taliban commander to get there to positively identify her so that they could put her to death. And okay. she did not remember that incident in the hospital until, you know, they mm -hmm. told her about it. And she was like, whoa, okay, trying to remember that. Um, so. <laughs> so she's in captivity. She's in captivity. And this is between about when and when. So this is in November of 2020. So it would be like. Right, right around our Thanksgiving of 2020. But but clearly she escapes somehow. She escaped. So talk about how she escaped. Okay. So enter into the story um, who I, Freshta and I call the boy. Freshta and the boy. But let, but I should clarify that he is not a boy. He is a man. Right. And that um, in Afghanistan, almost always when you, you know, have two people get together, the man is older. That is just traditionally the way that it is. So for the woman to be older than the man, um, that's really uncommon. And so this man who was, you know, like several years younger than Fareshta, she called him the boy. Okay. He, I believe, overheard talk of Fareshta and where she was being held. And he got in and got her out of that apartment. Okay. And he got her back to her family. Okay. And she and they didn't know each other. Um, no, but you've kind of presaged how things go, right? By right. Saying that they got clear, they got together, right? Um, they didn't know each other at the time, right? Uh -huh. So he got her back to her family, and um, when she got back in touch with me, and the reason I'm able to tell you all of this, Paul, and th that I know this story so well, is that. I was immediately trying to think of how I could help her process what she had just been through. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted her to write out her, her basically her trauma statement. Sure. You know, like, just pour it all out, get it all out. Right. Because you will forget, right? Our, our minds forget. Our, oh, yeah. Right? We just bury mm -hmm. it so that we can keep going and mm -hmm. survive. So, um, and she was a great student, you know, true to form. She right. wrote it. I think um, she wrote it all out in Dari first, and then she wrote it all out in English. And I, like, you know helped her. We worked it through. There were a few parts where I wasn't really sure what she was trying to say, so we worked it out. So I have her long statement of the time of her captivity, and she doesn't remember a lot of it now. And sometimes I'll bring a little bit up, and I'll see the look on her face like, oh, I've forgotten that, and I'll just okay. let it go. So these are all things that really validate this, this event for you, right? Definitely. These are, I mean, this is, this is not somebody just trying to... Um, you know, get an American to help them to a better life for no reason. Right. Right. Yeah. So. I, I definitely know, like, um, well, I think for me, I mean, this is a friend of mine now, you know, like I got to know her before sure. she had pro uh, this, this terrible thing happened to her. Right. And, um, and then in being able to be a part of her story 
now I don't ever think, oh, well, there's something not right. I mean, there are definitely been times when we're talking, I'm like, there's something not right, but it's not what Fresh is telling me. It's like, what are we going to do here to try to right. help you survive? Uh -huh. um, so the Taliban left two letters at her family's door. One was long and one was short. And I had um, my program manager at the agency, the volunteer agency where I volunteered, um, get someone else to like translate them for me so I could have so I have the Taliban copy and then I have a translation and it's basically written to her father explaining um, it says it says interesting things like your daughter um, was a slave for the United States like she worked for foreigners and that's their reason not okay. the reason that the men gave her when she was chained to the wall and interestingly if they're referring to the Doctors Without Borders work well they're not an American organization <laughs> so okay. Fresh has never worked for the United States government. Although there are American doctors who work with Doctors Without Borders. Of course, right. And right. But, so the Taliban letter says, for your daughter's work with foreigners, the, of the, um, she's a slave, and they named the United States. Okay. Um, did did, they, know, did they know that she was back at the house? Yes. So they knew, but they, wouldn't, they didn't come into the they house and take in. her. They knew that she was there, but they didn't come into the house to take her. Okay. And this uh, this could be an entirely another conversation, a long one, where the Taliban, we say the Taliban, but they are, in my mind, not one big cohesive group right. <laughs> that right. um, always acts the same. Like, I'm sure they're in other places in Afghanistan. They would have just knocked the door down and gone in. But I wonder if they, you know, just felt like, well, we just want this one woman. Like, they didn't want. Right. And this was around else. what time period? So those um, notes were left in December of 2020. Okay. I think the one was left in December, and then the shorter one, as it's like... And they're in, the family is living in what community? So I'm not going to tell you okay. where but, they live well, can in you, Afghanistan. Could you, could you, can you tell me if it was a community that was kind of controlled by the United States at that point, or by oh. U.S. interests, or, um, by, or by or Afghan government forces that were affiliated with the United States? Okay, this is what I will say. Until um, August of 2021, um, the Taliban controlled anywhere between 60 and 70 percent of the country. And then in August, now they control. That's when they, yeah. That's when they the, took over. Took over everything. Completely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In 20, August of 21. So I would say where Faresh's family lives, it's a gray area. It's a gray area? Okay. I would say they had okay. a lot of influence. Okay. Um, were they in control or not? I'm, I. But there were other, experts. I mean, the, the point, and I, and, the, the, and I think we should tell people <clears> that the reason why you don't want to disclose specifics is because you do fear that anything that goes on social media, any information, could be used as a clue to help the Taliban figure out what's going on with her, where she is. And I do. Yeah. So, I do. I so think you're very, very guarded about that. I am very guarded about that. And I think that, to me, um, there's just no way to predict. And so I would much rather be too guarded okay. than give too much information. I think, you know, there are maybe some places where the Taliban is actually doing other things and working to try and feed a starving population. I, you know, that's my hope, but I don't know. Okay. I don't know how, how uh, big their revenge bone is right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, there's a, well, there's a, I mean, we're, we're the, the Taliban isn't the subject. Of the, the Taliban's kind of mission isn't the subject of this discussion. That could be a really interesting um, discussion. I, I know I have my own opinions. But right. um, uh, talk about, um, in, in terms then of, they get the notes, they, they know she's there, so how... Does she not get recaptured by the Taliban? Not get so 
you know, her family didn't let her out the door for almost two months. So they basically just, it was sanctuary in their home. Yeah, sanctuary, house arrest. Yeah, like yeah. they were like, you cannot go outside, right? And then I think there were many, many conversations um, around her kitchen table of what to do. What are they going to do? I think they did think that the Taliban would eventually break down the door. I, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone believed that they would just go away. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the way that, that culturally it is for a woman, like once Fareshta left her family, you know, without the protection of her dad or her brothers, like she was going to be lost to them. And so I think that they got to that conclusion slowly, but it, but they got there they, she was going to have to be lost to them. They needed to send her away because she wasn't going to survive and she might then affect their survival as well. Okay. Um, and, and while they're reaching this conclusion, the boy came and visited the house as well and, you know, sat down with the, her father, sat down with her brothers and said, I think that they're close to finding me. I think they're going to discover who so, I am. So, so he was able to get her out of there without them knowing that it was him who did it. Exactly. Okay. He, so, but he then like said, okay, they're going to, they're going to figure it out and they're going to kill me and I'm going to go, I'm going to run. Right. And this was the chance they, I think that her family saw for her to survive. So they married and they went. And this, when I tell this story to friends of mine, they're like, whoa, right. <laughs> forced marriage. Um, you know, that's, right. that's not okay. Um, and it's funny because, you know, before this happened to Fareshta, we had talked about marriage and she was always adamant, you know, when her brothers would bring up like, oh, why don't we find, you know, a husband for you? And she was like, I will choose my husband. You are not going to choose him. And then this happened and nobody chose her husband. Right. <laughs> except, you know, except fate kind of chose fate her kind husband. of chose her The Taliban husband. kind the of Taliban. chose. They're, they're as responsible as anyone apparently. Um, so. But, you know, I, this was her chance to survive and his chance to survive. So they took it. Was and there was there anything strategic about being married? Would they, did they think it would be easier to travel? And, definitely. And, I mean. They were mar a married couple? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Like it, it was unthinkable to not be married. So okay. they married and they went. Okay. And, and they went where? They, um, they paid a smuggler and they made it through Iran all the way to Turkey. Okay. And they made it to the Turkey, the Turkish border. So in terms of the geography, explain that for us <sighs> Americans who don't understand the Mideast geography, even though we've got so much history over there. Okay. So it's a long way. It's, it's not a, really a short. Long way. It's not a short distance um, from I Afghanistan see, to Turkey. <laughs> the cal there was a calm part of the journey where it was just hours and hours and hours in a car, where they didn't have any trouble. Right. Um, it was February, so it was cold, cold Iranian desert. <laughs> right. Um, and there was a point in Iran where the smugglers tortured the boy um, and told. Freshta that she needed to give more money and they like hooked him up to electro I don't know the right word but they basically electrocuted him and Freshta described like just listening to his screams and begging with the smugglers to stop and it was traumatic it was not a peaceful journey how did they get him to stop that um I think that she promised more money okay um they were dumped near the Turkish border and had to walk. Fareshta said they walked for about two weeks. And that, to her, along with the, the torture part, was awful. But, like, the walking, she mm -hmm. remembers that horribly, sleeping outside. And it's the story of so many refugees, you know, right. just, like, trying to make it somewhere. Um, 
I should, you know, I'm going to be talking about him. So I just want to say quickly that I've given the boy an alias, uh, and I, 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 I asked him about it. I came, I came up with it. I, there's the Arabic word for secret is Israr. So I asked him, can I use this name Israr. for you? And mm-hmm. so he said, yes, I love it. So, okay. Israr. Israr. Fereshta and Israr. Fereshta and Israr. Uh, they walked across the Turkish border and they were arrested and they were held for 10 days and then they were released into um, the eastern part of Turkey and they are in a, a place, an, a town in eastern Turkey. Um, and what are the conditions of their release? So, and, and they were arrested. About put this in the timeline. About where? About what time? So this is after February. This is like March or what? No, what is let's this? see. This? They fled in late January. Okay. And um, they were released after ten days. I think it was the beginning of March or maybe okay. the very end of February. Okay. So it took a month to cross okay. Iran, and um, and be held by the Turkish government and then released. Okay. So, and then the conditions of their release. By um, the, by the conditions of the release: you can't leave the town where you're put, and um, you know there are so many refugees right now, and so many are flooding into Iran right now that I don't know what they're going to do. But Turkey's been dealing with a massive influx of refugees for years now. So before um, Syria. And the Syrian refugee crisis, I would say of like 2016 and 17 and 18, um, the, the process was the UN was in charge. And the UN would interview refugees and start to, the paperwork. But the UN could not keep up in Turkey. So the UN and the Turkish government sat down and worked out a deal where Turkey would take over for the UN and try to process refugees. And, um, you know... <laughs> I actually, I, I asked Reshta recently, I was like, okay, of the people that you were with in your group that was smuggled across and then arrested, how many of you are still there in Turkey? And she, was, and she said three, her, Israr, and one other Iranian woman. They're trying to do it the legal way. Everyone else has fled Turkey illegally. To, to where? To where, you know, trying to get to Europe. Okay. You try to get to Greece and then north. Um Okay. There, you know, there are routes. Yes, are well, there absolutely are well-defined well routes paths. for Middle Eastern refugees to get into Europe. There absolutely are. Right. I have no doubt that Fereshta and Isra are still just in Eastern Turkey because of me, because I have said, okay, let's try to do this legally. Let's try to get you somewhere. Okay. Legally, because I, I just think like when you get somewhere illegally, the path is so difficult mm-hmm. in. And I and I and I told him like I can't help you get anywhere illegally. You know I can only help you get somewhere right. <laughs> in the legal pathway. So, right. so let's try. And, okay. Um, so you know that's what they're doing. Okay. But it is rough where they are right now. They were get, so they were granted temporary um, status as not refugees, but like okay, you are legal to be here in this one you know town mm-hmm. in Turkey. Um, they were given IDs called Kimlis from the Turkish government, which I took to be a good sign. Like, okay, they were processed. Mm-hmm. They were given um, Kimlis. They're on the grid, so to They're speak. They're on the grid. They're kind of on the grid. But and- now both of their um, applications as refugees through the Turkish government have been denied, stamped denied. And when did that happen? Um, so Fereshtas was denied in October okay. or November. So... 
was granted, she was given her Kim Lee quickly, like in April of 2021, and then told, I think in September, October, okay, no, yes. denied. And then um, Istra just got his, like a couple of weeks ago. Okay. So because of Fresh's work with Doctors Without Borders, I reached out to them and asked them for anything that they could do. And they uh, put us in touch with an attorney in Turkey who has been helping us. So she's actually filed an appeal, now two appeals, one for Fereshta and one for Israr, in Turkish administrative court, okay. um, trying to keep them from getting you know, paperwork saying you have to leave Turkey. Okay. And we should probably mention that there's that something else happened. Okay, something. Time frame. <laughs> something as well. big happened, yeah, right? Something else happened. Um, Fereshta got pregnant last year, and um, I think it was kind of like, oh, this is t a terrible time. But she told me, she's like, I can't, I can't do anything but have this baby. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's your choice. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she just had a baby girl like three weeks, yeah. three and a half weeks ago. Yeah, very, very recently. Um, it's, it, you know, she had the baby in a hospital, so that's great. So is the baby a Turkish citizen? No. Not a Turkish citizen. Doesn't work like is, the United States, right? The baby is the not whole, a Turkish citizen. The whole anchor baby thing. No, no, that does not so work in Turkey not, at all. The United States is like one of the only countries in the world, I think, where that baby. actually does work. Yeah. I think there might be maybe Canada. Fascinatingly. Again, I don't know, but... Uh, and I would have to actually look this law up. I'm not sure that the baby is an Afghan citizen. I have to... I think that for if, if Afghanistan was up and running and the passport right. <laughs> agency was going, I think that the baby would get an Afghan passport. Probably, but right now Afghan's sure. kind of back to outlaw status. Yeah, so, nobody's getting an Afghan passport right now. I don't think so. Mm -mm. Probably not. Um, so. Okay, so Freshta had a baby. It's really rough conditions. There's, you know, ice. So, how, so what are they doing apartment. now? They're waiting. That they're they're waiting for their appeal to be processed. Um, so that's just to buy time. Nobody expects the Tur Turkish government to say you can stay. That would set a precedent. Okay, so if we're just buying time with the process, <laughs> just and buying and time, it, and they've proven so themselves they to be painfully slow because it took six months last time. So what is the what is the the plan? What's the strategy to get them some status or get them the ability to okay. be able to move legally through Europe, maybe out of Turkey into Europe right. or whatever the strategy might be? Paul, it's such a good States. question. Like there's really it, it's so hard everywhere. I mean, there is no country that's open to refugees. You know, there's no country that's like, welcome, anyone will take you, right? It's a hard path. Right. The, um, you know, it, despite what you see on the, some evening news channels about what goes on on the border and people coming in and all that stuff, but that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother ball of wax, A whole nother right? ball of wax we're not talking about here. <laughs> not talking um, about that. Okay, so when the um, the Taliban took over in Afghanistan last August, and so um, that caused a lot of uh, policy changes, um, and one that helped me and helped Fereshta. So with the Taliban taking over and the U.S. leaving Afghanistan, um, a small window was opened for Afghans who had already fled Afghanistan, not within the Afghan border, um, are allowed to apply for what's called humanitarian parole okay. into the United States. That's like a one-year pass in. 
Okay. And so if you get humanitarian parole, if that application is granted, you can come into the United States within the borders, and once inside, you can apply for asylum. Okay. And that is a, a long process as well. Sure. So right now, that is what I am trying to do. Okay. Um, I have put in a uh, humanitarian parole application for Foreshta and for Israr, and then I just added um, a third for the baby girl. And, sure. you know, it's $575 for every family member, no matter what. So send off okay. a check for 575 And if they are granted that, I'm the sponsor in the paperwork. So um, I'm raising money to, like, bring them to get their plane tickets and to get them a place to live inside the United States while I get them into a refugee resettlement agency. And I use the term refugee, um, meaning there are resettlement agencies that help people who come in who are not citizens, but they don't have to have the refugee status, which is another ball of legal wax <laughs> over right. here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Um, which is really, yeah, that we're not going for that. We're not going for refugee status inside the U.S. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get them to the U.S. If the humanitarian parole applications are denied, then um, I have to find another path for them. So I will try Canada. Um, and I will definitely try a few countries in Europe, and then you know, they would they would really go anywhere, anywhere where they can have right now a warm apartment for their baby, right. anywhere where their you know their little girl can grow up and go to school. I think like Fareshta is so amazing, and she will make such a fantastic attorney. But she needs to mm-hmm. be able to go to school, right. you know, and yeah. and have that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, how can people help? How can people help? So we've set up uh, an email address where you can email us. And um, then I have a GoFundMe site that I can steer you directly to if you want to donate money. Um, Okay. Is there any kind of a nonprofit conduit for this at the the moment? There is not. Just GoFundMe. Yeah. Um, That would be great, though. Yeah. (laughs) If I could have a third job. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Setting up a nonprofit, yeah. I mean, there are a ton of refugee agencies, but they're well, overwhelmed I mean, I, right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a bandwidth thing too, right? I mean, you've got a day job, you've got a family, you're trying to do this, you're trying to help people. You're now right. you're trying to contact foreign countries as backup, as Plan C, D, and E. You know, so there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, there, there is definitely a lot, and I would I would say this too, Paul. That I mean, if you look at Afghanistan right now, it is hard and it is tough to look at. I mean, there there are like Millions and, of people facing starvation right and what, now. And what, and what do we hear about that on the news? And what do we hear nothing. about that on the news? Absolutely nothing. It's out of the narrative. It's out of the, it's out of the news cycle. We left there. We, left, we abandoned that country, and it is in disaster mode again. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I would mm-hmm. say, I mean, I, I get it. I get the political debate. Of you can't support the Taliban. Um, but, you know, how many people are the Taliban? And then you look at... The population of, of Afghanistan is just under 40 million. And like more than half are in food insecurity. Yeah. But that's creeping up to not just food insecurity, to starvation. I mean, we're looking at massive suffering. Yeah. And, and it's overwhelming. And, yeah. and like, what can we do to help? And I would say to anyone who's watching us and have this conversation, like this is, this is one small thing you could do. This is one, one Afghan family of a mom and a dad now, mm-hmm. new labels for right, them. Right. But, you know, Isra was studying to be an engineer. Like, these are two young people who have potential to do great things with their life and to raise another, one Afghan woman 
who my best hope is that she will get to, you know, go to Afghanistan one day. This little baby who knows nothing of where she comes from. I mean, what a dream, right? That she would get to return to Afghanistan as a professional woman one day. That's my hope. And I have to have that hope. Yeah. That's what keeps us going. Yeah, yeah. So... So. You know, it's it's um, the, those individual, those personal connections, you know, and having the courage to follow them through is kind of pretty extraordinary, actually. So, well, thanks. It's a pretty extraordinary thing you're trying to do. Well, thank you. So, is it, or is it just something that I think? It, could I do? think it's extraordinary. Thanks, so, I, I mean, I don't know, but, you know, but uh, but I, I I do. I mean, there's there's nothing more American, I don't think, than trying to to help the individual who's trying to help themselves. Okay. And that's that seems to me to be kind of what you, what this is. So that's what I see. Well, I love that. We should get, like we should talk about this more and inspire more Americans to be more American. Well, there are a lot of people that that, that <laughs> yeah. do it, right? And th- like, this is a very very unique case, I think, and it's very compelling because of all the dimensions that are involved. I mean, you couldn't write a movie. You can. Uh, uh, I've told Fresh to that. I'm like your turns. story now is turning into quite the movie. So, so it is. You know, it's one of those stories that is really that really has that quality where it's it's I almost agree. it almost it almost suspends belief um, because there are so many twists and turns to it. Right. Um, the so, Taliban is such an amazing bad guy in the story, and yeah. then you have all of the trials. Well, and, and then the there's yeah, hardship. and then there's nowhere to turn. And nowhere to turn. You know, you've got this big bad guy. And there's because of an incident that happened ten years ago, ten years ago, and then and then there's nowhere to turn. I asked the Turkish attorney uh, what she thought about the danger of Taliban crossing over to basically you know execute someone in Turkey and going back. And she said, "Well, I've heard of several cases about it happening from Iran, <laughs> where people fleeing Iran into Turkey." Then the reigning government sends someone across the border to execute them and comes back. She's like, I haven't heard about it from Afghanistan, but not to say that it hasn't happened. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah and is, I would also crazy. add that um, if for whatever reason I raised more money than I needed to help Freshta and her family, there are other um, women attorneys who are mentors for this organization who are trying to help their Afghan mentees other Afghan women who made it out of Afghanistan and they're trying to help, you know, right. find safe harbor anywhere. So I would roll those funds over to however many other um, yeah. Afghan and, women. And um, you should probably um, say what the email address is. Um, Jeremy will zap it up on the, on the screen, too. On the screen? Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. it's fareshtastale at gmail.com. Okay. And Fareshta, F-A-R-E-S-H-T-A-T-A-L-E. At gmail.com. Yeah, and it's fresh tuz, T-A-S. Right. T-A-L-E. Yep. At gmail.com. Good. Anything else people should know? <sighs> um, well, I talk about a lot of other things. But. Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot going on in the world right There's now. a lot going on it's in the world. On, you but, know, uh, it's easy to forget about harsh stuff when you're in Aspen sometimes. I don't know. It's an amazing place. It, but it is. It just reminds me more of if you can help, then you probably should. Yeah. So. Great. Well, thank you very much. 
Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it as well. It's been very good to get to know you, and I wish Likewise. you all the luck in the world with this. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll keep you updated. Okay.